This is Designing the Revolution. You're listening to Chapter 24, The Emergence of the People, Part 1. Okay, so what I'm going to do in this episode is partially revisit and hopefully develop the main job that we've got. The main job that we've got is not just to mobilise people, but something which is a bit more holistic and complicated, which is what I'm calling the emergence of the people. So there's two words there. There's the emergence. Now, sometimes this is called uh, the construction of the people. But it's sort of, you know, maybe I'm being finickety, but don't particularly like the word construction because we're back to this mechanical 19th, 20th century, you know, we are constructing something here, as opposed to emergence, which is more sociability-esque, which is people are coming together, they're emerging into some sort of ecology of resistance, and there's lots of different things going on, and they're connected in complicated networking sort of ways. So we're going to use the word emergence. And then, but I'm keeping this word, the people, I think it's quite interesting, the notion of um, the people is not a preset category. We've talked about this quite a bit. The people is something that is socially constructed. In other words, you go out and the people come together, different groups come together, and they start to have any, a consciousness that they are the people and they are the majority and they're going to take control. And you can juxtapose this, I suppose, with the sort of Daily Mail version of the public. And in order, these are politicised phrases. The public is not some neutral phrase. When the Daily Mail says the public, the public don't like to stop oil. They're pretending there is something called the public. And they're pretending, of course, they know what the public think. Well, no, they don't. And no, they don't. You know, it's a political move. It's a rhetorical move. It's a power move. Right. So. In opposition to that, we don't want to be naive. We don't think, we don't need to think there is the public. Obviously, there is in some, you know, basic objective sense, there's loads of people in the country. But in terms of what the people want, that's a highly politicised proposition, right? And what we uh, strategically need to brew is bring these groups together, engage in confrontation with the opposition. And through that confrontation, we consolidate and expand this collective consciousness, okay? So this is the broad revolutionary agenda, as you might say. And it's complicated, okay? You know, this is not just charge forward. It's not just a matter of a little bit of rhetoric, you know, at the end of some, you know, big book, book by Marx. It's, it needs thinking about and it needs to be thought about in the context of modern research and, and the historical sociology, which is what we're referring to over this this podcast. All right, so let's think about this a bit closer. Um, as I do in most of my <laughs> episodes, and I'm drumming this into you, is, is we've got this notion of politics being a function of psychology rather than economics. Economics sort of conventionally uh, defined. In other words, people engage in politics, they engage in the political, they engage in confrontation through a psychological motivations, a plurality of motivations, as opposed to this reductive econ economic, you know, pretense, as you might say, that people just think about self-interest. 
and we, we've already discussed how self-interest is problematic in itself, as it were, because what exactly does self-interest mean? Uh, it's not immediately clear. And this brings us along to this notion that what the people do is they believe in an ideology. They believe in a construction of different cultural elements. And the actual content of that ideology and the content of that cultural landscape is not actually that important. Yes, it has importance, but it's a reflection of something deeper in human nature, which is the desire for certainty, sociability, belonging, recognition, this complex of human desires which are foundational, structural, they're wired in. This is what it means to be a conscious human being. You're looking for meaning, you're looking for connection. And what the, poli the political does is gives you uh, answers, gives you responses to those inbuilt desires. And the fundamental point here, the critique of conventional uh, thinking about this, is the self-interest is, is not foundational. What's foundational is the desire for meaning. And self-interest, in inverted commas, i.e. doing well for myself, is one mechanism amongst others of actually uh, giving meaning. So what we have to do strategically is look deeper at how we can provide meaning, which will provide people with a different pathway to social action other than um, uh, self-interest, in inverted commas. Okay, and how this gets manifested, of course, is through uh, optics through colour, through art, ritual, emblems, symbolism, symbolic actions, symbolic words, poetry, you know, text, um, the stimuli. Uh, and this, this is a universal aspect, right, of human motivation. So traditionally this is, you know, downplayed as always rationalistic people. For instance, in the climate movement, they think, you know, it's all about it's all about 1.5. No, it's not. What it's about is is the XR symbol. It's the XR symbol that brings you out on the street. Obviously, I'm exaggerating somewhat. You are going to go on the street because of 1.5. But the thing that embellishes it and arguably makes it meaningful is a symbol. The symbol doesn't mean anything. But what the symbol does is, what the symbol is saying is, here, join this collectivity. Join this meaning structure because then you'll feel more fulfilled and you're going to feel more real uh, and, and, and such like. And then underlying this, this, uh, this proposition is the paradox of political identity. So again, we've talked about this, you know, we've said, yeah, it's great to get people together. It's great to do cultural acti activities. It's great to have people in groups, you know, it's great to do pizza and politics night like like they did in North London. I think I've mentioned this where you don't do have a night where you're just talking about you're just talking about politics. You want to talk about politics while you're eating a pizza. <laughs> and you think, you know, all the rationalists go, well that's irrelevant, isn't it? You know. No, it's not. It's absolutely foundational to whether people are going to turn up. Well, they're turning up because it's a social situation. Okay. So you've got this positive program which we've been talking about loads, and we've identified this problem, paradox political identity. You know, people set up local chapters, egotistical people move in, dysfunctional people move in, take leadership positions, and 
the very mechanism of success, setting up all this infrastructure of identity, basically is our own worst enemy because it brings it back down. And broadly speaking, the agenda here is to create um, a, a design which is going to minimize this dynamic because we can't get rid of it altogether in this suboptimal universe, as you might say. So what does that mean? Well, we can refer to previous episodes, right? It's about having uh, an ethical culture, which is explicitly welcoming people in. It's about having a service culture where people enter the space in humility in order to do the common good. This is like, this is embedded in, in the induction process, for instance. We have an outward facing culture. If you join, then what you're doing on Saturday is you're having a store, you're going leafleting or you're talking to people, you're ringing up, you know, your friends, you're getting people to come. This isn't incidental. This is central to the culture, which is to look outwards. And this is embedded in, in the leadership culture of people going, I'm the, you know, I'm a leader. Lots, there's lots of leaders, obviously, but the leaders are there and instructed and socialized and trained to become outward facing. So they're saying, oh, we're going to do leafleting, you know, on Saturday. We're not saying, oh, we don't want to do leafleting because you don't need more people in this group. You see, diametrically different approaches. And there's a sort of evangelical aspect to it. And you can learn a lot, dare I say, from the evangelical church, Christian church, because they go out and they have this explicit ideology of bringing people in, welcoming people, not judging people at best, right? Um, I mean, obviously, there's lots of judgment in that space. But there's also, you know, to be fair, um, in that sort of Christian tradition, one of the reasons Christianity has been so successful is that ability to bring people in. So we're not saying we're going to become a Christian evangelical church, of course, but we can learn and take these aspects uh, from these different experiences of mobilising and creating uh, collectivities within society. So that's one challenge, okay? So I'm putting that out there. We're going to be coming back to this continually, you know, how, how we maintain this, this organisational social health. The second challenge then is about the mechanism of mobilisation, the top level strategy. So what we've, we've been talking about, and I want to just elucidate on this for the next few minutes, is, is we need to be really clear that we're not setting up social clubs here, right? That the creating the collectivity is a means to an end. Obviously, it's an end in itself in so much as it creates sociability, but it fundamentally has to be a, me an, 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 a means to the end of social transformation, to the end of taking political power, uh, as you might call it. So there's two historical mechanisms of doing this. The first mechanism we've talked about quite a lot which is the disruptive action. Disruption gets attention. It gets people to think about what's going on. It brings people in, in, into your cultural space. The second one is standing in elections. Again, this is a form of disruption. Don't think standing in elections is like some binary of getting to power. No, the very act of standing in election is, is, is challenging the power of the political establishment by definition because people are going to vote for you and not vote for them, if you see what I mean. So we need, we'll be discussing this a lot more. But you can see there's two mechanisms which are real, okay? One of them is you go and cause disruption. 
that's a real activity no one's no one's bullshitting you it actually brings home the goods you get loads of attention standing election actually means you get hold of your local council whatever it is that's real it's a no bullshit proposition so you can juxtapose these <clears throat> two two no bullshit propositions as it were to what you might call the performative bullshit of of the ngo uh, um you know conventional campaigning space it's like okay we're going to go down to london and we're going to march for the day everyone knows it's useless everyone knows it's never going to get anywhere by definition it's not going to get where anywhere obviously disruption doesn't guarantee you're going to get somewhere but at least you're in the ballpark at least you're you're at least just shaking a dice if you just do an a to b march if you just do you know emailing uh, lobbying you know you're not going to get anywhere in the present context of dealing with entrenched power. Okay, so, you know, one of the fundamental areas, with all due respect, with where Extinction Rebellion has moved towards is, is this notion that if, we, if we're nice, if we reach out to other groups, you know, if we go to society and try and persuade them, number one, with our niceness, number two, with information, this is, lovely, this is a lovely projection of how many pe many people in exile would like society to work, but empirically it's bollocks, right? It simply doesn't get anywhere. You know, that was a big march a few um, weeks ago, you know, 60, 80,000 people. No one's interested. Why they're interested? No, not interested. You know, whether you like it or not, the fact of the matter is because it wasn't disruptive. And arguably it's a useful thing to do because it's going to create a pathway to, to uh, disruption, which is all fair enough. But if it's just what it is, well, it's, uh, it's not going to do the job. OK, and that brings us on then to, to this notion of using emotion and uh, tit-for-tat approach, which is you go out, you cause disruption, and then you engage in dialogue. You say, we've caused disruption. Do you want to talk? No, you don't want to talk. OK, we're going to go back for, to disruption. In other words, in the literature, it's called tit-for-tat, right? You're nice. The opponent is nice back. Great, you're talking. You're nice. The opponent is horrible. Okay, you're horrible. Then you go to be nice again. We're going to be nice to you. The, the opponent is nice. Great, you talk. The opponent is horrible. You go back to being horrible. So you can see this, you know, this is the classic interaction on strike action. You know, do a few days of strikes, try and negotiate more strikes, try and negotiate. Finally, there's negotiation and the strikes stop. Um, and um, but what you can see in this process is is the the um, central structure here of disruption and dialogue. These two things go together, which, as we've discussed, makes it fundamentally and paradigmically different to the violence paradigm, which is which is disruption, 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 uh, power over, crush, take control. Okay, so let's just use one or two little examples here. Um, you know, there's overwhelming empirical evidence for this. So, for instance, at the beginning of XR, people went and uh, disrupted Greenpeace. You know, it's quite iconic. Uh, it's turned into this, this moment where XR created an identity for itself. No, an identity, a meaning structure for itself that we are not them. We are not... Um, Greenpeace, we're not the NGOs. So notice the emergence of the people is produced through separating yourself from various social spaces. So you're, this is 
this is why you're constructing it, right? You're saying we're not them, we are this. Come and join us because we're not them. So there's two messages. That there is us and there's us not being them. These are the two fundamental messages. This is us and us means not them. We are not Greenpeace because they're letting down the environmental movement. So we go there, we cause the disruption and at the same time there's a dialogical element. We sit down with them, you know, and blah, blah, blah. They're semi-nice depending upon your, your viewpoint. The point is, is that became an iconic, famous, like, moment in the history of the British environmental movement. And it's fair to say thousands of people joined XR because they thought, oh, right, these guys are serious. They're actually saying something real. Secondly, we know about the Insulate Britain uh, episode. You know, I'm not going to say much about that, but just uh, sitting on the motorways, 80% name recognition within two weeks and what have you on the front page of the papers. Again, you're, you know, in this might sound peculiar, but you are creating an emergent new people, a new concept of what the people is, which at that point, of course, is juxtaposed to loads of people not liking you. But this is what the revolutionary move is. It's always saying, no, there's a new way of being, there's a new way of acting, there's a new culture, and it's not that culture even if 80% of the population doesn't want to join it. Within time, it becomes the new zeitgeist. And of course, Insulate Britain was the beginning of that process. You know, lots of people hated it, but it became like the new zeitgeist. Everyone thinks insulation is a good idea now. Um, we've had like in Germany, in the last generation, there's lots of examples with this big confrontation that's going on in Germany at the time of me speaking to you. So in Germany, interestingly enough, if, if they'd been like constructive and dialogical and nice, you know, all the artist community, number one, wouldn't know about them. And number two, uh, wouldn't be coming on board because why would they? You know, there's nothing interesting happening. Then they go and block lots of motorways. 80% of the German public doesn't like them. It doesn't matter. It's the disruption that creates 1,500 artists writing a letter saying, we support you. So notice there's probably like, 20,000 artists, right? You've, but you've activated those one and a half thousand artists. Uh, how did you activate them? By being disruptive. In other words, it starts to bring people in to this new coalition, this new emergence of the people. Um, and a little sort of, you know, wind up final example, of course, from the right wing is the Brexit campaign. So what the Brexit campaign did, it was disruptive, challenges the Tory party, people stand in the elections. But it creates this new power formation in society, uh, which you might not like, and I don't like it, and all the rest of it. But from a sociological point of view, massively effective because it creates this new emergence of the people. I.e., the people don't want to be part of the EU, and you know whether that's empirically correct or not. It has this valiance. It has this this effect upon society, and the Tory party panics and they have a referendum, and you can see how that was very effective. Um, yeah. Okay, so in the second part of this talk, I'm going to look at how the left over the last 200 years, 100 years, for the sake of argument, has, has, has dealt with these, these fundamental challenges and has tried to mobilise people, uh, arguably with limited success, um, because they haven't understood 
the precise challenges that they face because of ideological, philosophical, ego-esque sort of reasons. Okay. So I'm going to draw out some of these fundamental sort of elements in, in the three, three approaches. So the first approach I want to look at is what you might call traditional classical Marxism. And to a certain extent, this is, leads into, you know, the Fordist trade unionist approach. So this is the 20th century approach of mass political parties, big trade unions. We've talked about this, um, where everyone joins this this sort of objective, materialistic, mechanical sort of group. And everyone, you know, for better or worse, everyone does what the leadership says. And there's a lot of coercion, either explicit coercion, threat of violence or ostrification, or a really intense uh, ideology, which um, doesn't have much competition because society is fairly simple, there's limited media, there's limited education and such like. So these days arguably have gone, of course, but it's interesting to uh, see some of the roots of these dilemmas within the strategy that the Marxists uh, engaged engaged with. So the first thing to say here is, is you know, there was a one strand of thinking is 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 highly deterministic, uh, his sort of historical determinism. And what this says is, the ruling class is full of contradictions. You know, the 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 revolution is inevitable because of these contradictions. And when the revolution happens, the working class is going to take control. So everyone's, you know, most people are familiar with this sort of orientation and as side, you know, developments of it, you know, there's this sort of global imperialistic uh, contradiction uh, of colonial lands getting, getting taken over and wars of independence against them and running out of the world's resources. There's a whole bunch of things. But the, what I want to focus on is this rather, you know, problematic, to put it mildly, notion that all this is inevitable and it's not because as the Marxist sort of as history has progressed since the mid 19th century we've had case study after case study where actually it's not going to just automatically happen and the consensus on this high level determinism started to break down very early on as many of you may know with with the emergence of the Leninist the sort of Bolshevik side uh, in the in the in that ran up to the Russian Revolution. Now what's interesting here is that there's another sort of traditional approach that the Bolsheviks uh, and the communists you know discovered was didn't work which which, which is what you might call pro pure propaganda. So you've got this historical determinism thing which doesn't really work and then you've got this this emphasis upon informational rationality and argument which also doesn't work so both incidentally are, are rooted in this enlightenment uh, notion that that you go out you give people information you give people argument you get people in the classroom and you teach them and that makes them revolutionaries now what they found you know in pre-revolutionary russia of course is number one this is really labor intensive and number two is it doesn't actually work right <laughs> you know be, what people are concerned about is is the food on the table, you know, uh, what's going to happen with their jobs, um, the bureaucracy, the housing situation. People, by definition, are concerned 
with immediacies, proximity, design and such like. So they're not going to be attracted to some highly intellectualized theory of history, uh, apart from one or two people, which is why most Marxist groups around the world are these self highly bonded ideological groups that can't really understand why everyone won't follow them because they're following a psychological model which is two three hundred years out of date however you know being practical guys they sort of started to move towards this agitation model the agitation model you know is a bit heretical in a way because it starts looking at a sort of praxis orientation i.e you're actually looking at what people are concerned with and then you're going to agitate on the basis of those issues. And there's big debates about that, whether that's going to lead to degeneration, you know, back to reformism, back to trade union activity and such like. But on balance, a lot of these revolutions are saying, well, we've got to take that chance because we need to mobilise lots of people and they will choose an issue. Uh, and obviously, when you've got these workers' movements, they are mainly based around, around these specific areas of... Um, of immediate concern but you can see like this tension between the revolutionary program and you know how you're going to mobilize people and the fact of the matter is it's a bit of a horns of a dilemma it's actually very difficult to do so you can see echoes of this in our modern you know up-to-date mobilization strategy uh, how, how much do you go with where people actually think rather than where they should be thinking big problem all right, so that sort of forms the groundwork of it. But as we go through the 20th century, you know, the whole Marxist determinism, you know, theory of history, it all starts breaking down, partially due to, you know, the force of empirical evidence, partially due to the uh, unavoidable embarrassment of the regression into authoritarian, uh, sadistic, uh, terror-based rule in the USSR and such like. So then you get this emergence, obviously I'm moving pretty quickly here, <laughs> but here we get the emergence of this, what some people call a post-structuralist a post approach. So what these guys are saying is, is there's no theory of history, domination is, is, is endemic in human affairs and it emerges not just from the state, it emerges within society. So Foucault comes along and says, you know, there's this running of prisons, running of psychiatry and such like. And these these dominant frames of reference emerge through the rise of the middle class, the rise of the bourgeoisie, and, and they may take over the state. So it's not particularly about the state, it's about dominating systems of beliefs. And this leads to, as we've already discussed, this sort of tendency towards nihilism or fatalism, that whatever you do, there's going to always be power and there's always going to be domination. So the subtext is, you know, extreme cynicism or extreme fatalism. It's what's the point? And, and you get this rather privileged and self-serving uh, absolute critique that as soon as something exists in reality, then by definition it's dominating. You know, everything's equally dominating and therefore you know, you can totally critique everything. So needless to say, this is something of a dead end. Now, I'm not saying, by the way, Foucault was necessarily saying that in always his, his work. You know, he might argue that you can and would argue that you can make small changes. But the general, uh, the general framework is defeatist and, 
and and and, and cynical uh, at least that's how i would say it. however you know that sort of extreme position hasn't been that you know because it's a dead end people haven't thrown out the baby through the bathwater and there's been within this postmodernist base that there isn't some big theory of history and there's loads of different things going on there's this been this left popularist emergence which we're going to be talking about continually and that's the idea after Fordism after the breakdown of mass society there's greater fluidity there's greater possibilities of doing this construction of the people we've got this guy um, Grumpsky who's saying you know march through the institutions let's focus on culture uh, let's focus on emotion you know this isn't hard economic determinism and you get this I new ideas about symbolism uh, collective action being constructed rather than being predetermined and this moves into this notion of setting up political parties so I'm going to talk about Podemos in more depth but what you can see with the Podemos party you know it's a party that emerged from the austerity period in Spain in the mid 2000 around 2015 is yes this positive agenda of we can create this emergence of the people we can through confrontation through emotion so it's conforming to our sort of frame that i've outlined but there's key limitations and the key limitations is the exclusive focus on the politicization uh, of the of the social space what what i mean by that is is that everything becomes political but what we're saying or at least what i'm saying in these podcast series is no it's right it's like what we need to focus on is is deep culture deep sociability you know having meals uh, having a running club having socials um sitting the road as an act of of sociability so that we can start to get to the heart of culture rather than bringing everything into this rather uh arid futile that uh, rather arid um alienating notion of 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 politics the other thing with podemos is is and this is true of Syriza as well is this inability to actually push forward uh, to use the street movements to support them when they're confronting international capital in in other words there's a hesitancy to actually push all all the way and um and we'll we'll discuss this 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 more but you can see the post-structuralist move obviously you know you can see how that's a reaction to marxism hopefully and you can see how it's got its own difficulties in nihilism but it's got this opening this fairly constructive not perfect opening uh, through potamus to the present moment where yes it is possible to create new political forms uh, but it needs a lot more design work on it so lastly the third element just to finish off this this chapter uh, is is that what i would call the the radical left now i've been told by various people you know the radical left covers a multitude of sins it means different things in different places around the world so i'm just using a fairly british context here in the british context radical left uh, at least arguably refers to what i would call a degeneration of the left project into to use an old-fashioned word bourgeois individualism in other words what 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 the uh, radical left has done is accepted the broad frame that there is no alternative frame of british capitalism which obviously is very much connected with international capital 
properties, we can't change the fundamentals of the economic system. So it's like it's come full circle from uh, old style Marxism, where, you know, all that matters is control of the economy, the hard facts, you know, uh, the, the social inequality money. It's gone full circle and saying, we're not going to worry about social inequality, or at least we're just going to pay lip service to it. What we're going to fundamentally focus on, which, which is, they won't call it this, but it's basically access to the capitalist frame, access to the capitalist space. In other words, intersectionalism is basically giving free, equal access to this system of, of domination, of hierarchy, of inequality. In other words, it's not questioning, it's not questioning why we have to have this extreme inequality. It's saying that if you're black or if you're a woman or if you're in a particular identity space, you should have free access. You should be able to move through your into your company as easily as white men can. You should be able to get to the top of your university as easily as white men can. You should be able to... Um, you know, be able to move through a company hierarchy as fast as anyone else. You should be able to be able to make Hollywood movies. So it won't come as any surprise, of course, that this has originated in the USA, where the social critique uh, of the left has always been weak, and it's been more. The left has always been the left in inverted commas has always been identified with, um, you know, access. To, to the system. Now, I'm not, you know, necessarily making an absolute moral judgment that it's useful for people to have access to the main power blocks of society, but this is emphatically not a revolutionary strategy, right? This is an accommodating strategy, which, um, which basically creates displacement activities for people to think about how they can fit into the system better rather than questioning the system itself. So at this moment in time, in 2023, while I'm doing this podcast, of course, this this system of logics has become objectively like self-contradictory. In other words, it, the, the whole objective interests of the poor, people of colour, women, all, all the objective interests of, of these groups is to actually remove the system because the system is destroying their interests systematically you know, through the social assault, through austerity, and obviously through the climate crisis. So the whole strategy of the radical left, which might have seemed a good excuse in the hopeless days of the 1990s or the 2000s in 2023, totally outdated and arguably, you know, you could be rhetorical about it and say it's fundamentally reactionary because it creates disintegration at a time when we're trying to construct the people. It's creating this fetish of horizontalism, you know, I'm an individual, don't tell me what to do when we're trying to create some democratic collectivism. And this is all due to this rather paradoxical um, reduction, reductionism, which is the individual and my rights is the whole uh, territory of what the progressive space is, what the left is. No, it's not, self-evidently. Uh, you only need to look at history to show that. So just to conclude then, you know, with the radical left space, it's got two fundamental elements. Zero mobilisation, zero solidarity, right? Zero mobilisation, because mobilisation by definition involves people coming together, you know, and moving into uh, some sort of collectivity. And secondly, zero solidarity, because solidarity, at least in its objective, as you might say, historical meaning, means engaging in struggle 
in 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 uh, in in um, in combination with with oppressed groups. Well, what the radical left says is that you can show solidarity, you know, through uh, performative activities, i.e., just stating you're in solidarity, having a conference on solidarity, uh, putting on social media in solidarity. That's uh, a total contradiction of what solidarity obviously means. What solidarity means is is you go into social struggle, civil resistance with the oppressed groups to the point of a of uh, arrest and prison that's the classical definition okay so you know we're giving all this what three out of ten five out of ten maybe seven out of ten with Podemos, right what we need to get to is is something that's a lot more optimized and what i'm going to be looking at in the next two or three parts of building this coalition the emergence of the people is concrete ways at the present historical moment that we're going to build this coalition and this collectivity uh, which is going to then overwhelm the bad guys as it were all right thanks so much